Welcome to the Quick Talk Podcast with Joshua Latimer, where we discuss business, life, family, faith, struggle, fire, pain, and ultimately winning. It's time to take massive action. Look, I, I can't work harder on your life or business than you do. It's ultimately all on you. You know, God created all the food the birds would ever need, but he doesn't put it in their nest. You've got to go get it. 10 out of 10 people die. So how about doing something today that actually matters while you still can? Hey, my friends, welcome to the Quick Talk Podcast. Hope you're doing awesome. I have a really special interview recorded for you. Now, when I recorded this interview, I was traveling. I was in Florida speaking at a small event called Fleetwash Academy. So shout out to all the Fleetwash people. Um, and this is with Mike McCallowitz, and he's been on the podcast before. He's highly requested. You guys always want me to have him on. He has a new best-selling book out called Clockwork. A lot of you guys have read it. It's outstanding. Uh, from what I understand, I've kind of got the bullet points, and we talk about the book in this interview. Uh, but I had a few audio issues uh, being in a hotel room recording this. Hopefully, you can forgive me for that. Uh, apologies. Uh, but it's the content is so good. You're going to love it. Mike uh, has built and exited several different businesses. He's also lost everything after having millions. He has an incredible story, and uh, he's going to tell us how he's building his empire now, and what he can share with you is going to be really, really valuable. So let's welcome Mike McCallowitz. Well, yeah, I don't know about building an empire, but it, it is a pleasure to be here with you, Josh. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, if you could um, maybe share your story. Yeah. Some people are familiar with you, but I'm sure that others are not. Yeah. You have a very interesting story. You've impacted thousands of entrepreneurs with your book, Profit First. Uh, you wrote The Pumpkin Plan, which is actually the first time I was introduced to you. And you've just been doing a lot. You've had a lot of highs, a lot of lows. Talk about like your business journey, your entrepreneurial journey, and uh, let's see if we can help add value to some of these home service companies today. Yeah, so uh, well, I'm an entrepreneur myself. Now, I, my first business was in the tech space, tech services specifically, setting up computers, uh, running cable. We were running Cat5. Actually, back then, it was coax cable through ceilings and down walls and stuff. Um, and I was able to sell that business to private equity. And then I, I started a second company in computer crime investigation. Um, my company is one of the investigators on the Enron trial and um, did some major cases. That got acquired by a Fortune 500. And... Uh, I don't think those are the interesting parts of my story. I think, quite frankly, those are resume fillers. You know, those are nice two bullet points. Right below that, you can put, you know, proficient at Microsoft Word. Um, you know, speaks English, okay. Or, really, you know, like, like those are resume bullet points. I think the real interesting thing in my story, and, and I, why I think what we're going to talk about today is applicable to your listenership, Josh, is my struggles. So neither of those businesses were truly profitable when I was running them. They were surviving check by check. I um, I made my money on selling them, and then I was chock full of arrogance and ignorance and thought that I knew all the answers to business growth. Um, and so I started another business that was an angel investing company. We'd start and fund different businesses. Well, that was a calamity. All these businesses collapsed. I lost all my accumulated wealth at that point, wiped myself out. So in my early 30s, I was a self-made millionaire. Uh, only two years later, I had eradicated all, all the stuff I had all the money, all the possessions. And uh, I remember coming home to my family one particular day. And then the reason I was losing this money was just, oh, I, I thought I could swing my way out of this. That one big smart move would save my entire business. Um, not realizing that successful businesses are an accumulation of many successful small moves, you know, small habits. So I came home um, 
and face my children, um, including my daughter at the time. There's so I had three children. My wife, my daughter at the time was nine years old and had told them I lost everything. We'd lose our house. We'd lose our cars. But I had to tell my daughter that she was going to lose her horseback riding lessons, which to her was everything. And it was like 20 bucks a lesson. Um, and as I was telling this to her, her eyes welled up as I was crying. She ran out of the room and I thought she was running away. Like, you know, because she couldn't face me. She was disgusted by me as much as I was disgusted by myself. And uh, the fact was she wasn't running away. She ran to her bedroom to grab her piggy bank and she ran back to me as little faster than her little legs would carry her. And she said, you know, daddy, daddy, I'll start supporting our family. And, um, oh, <laughs> that man. Moment, that moment, yeah. And, and I'm at home, my home office right now, right in front of me. Just by chance, I have these rotating images is my daughter with her horse. <laughs> so I'm looking at the picture right now. And, um, that was like the dagger to my heart. Like I, I was, I felt so angry at myself for destroying ourselves financially, but I was, disgusted the fact that my daughter felt compelled to save us because of my own ignorance and arrogance. Well, it was like the sweetest thing ever, but for a man, it like stomps and crushes every, whatever remained of your ego at that point. But it's a very sweet thing, a very sweet gesture. It was very sweet. It was very sweet. And if you can visualize, it was a piggy bank wrapped in duct tape and rubber bands, all these different things, not because it had ever broken, she said she never wanted a robber to steal from her so she could buy her horse one day. So she was protecting it. And um, with that, it became the wake-up call. I, I love what you just said. It, it, it crushed the soul – the ego. I was just saying not the soul. It crushed the ego and it reinvigorated my soul. I, I started to realize that um, I, 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 it's no longer about accumulation or any of that stuff. It was about, for me, education and learning and an ultimate contribution – and I decided to become an author. And just to kind of run out the story, uh, is an interesting discovery I had is that when you daydream, I don't care what business you're in, when you daydream about one day, what if you could do anything in your life, what would you do? And that's the question we ask. Um, I found that there's a complimentary question to it. And the question is, when you have no money, when you're at the very bottom, what's the vocation you want to do to dig out? And when that same answer comes up, when if you had all the money in the world, you would do X, and when you have to make a living doing something, it's the same answer. That's your calling. And for me, I wanted one day, if I had all the money in the world, I'd become an author. I, when I had nothing, I said, I, I commit to being an author and I'm going to find a way to make it profitable. Um, and that's when it became clear this is what I needed to devote myself to. That was 11 years ago. And uh, today, I, I'm an author of those, those books you shared and, and I'm writing another one right now with the specific purpose of eradicating entrepreneurial poverty. Meaning so many entrepreneurs struggle financially, but they struggle with time. We work our asses off. Uh, we struggle in so many ways, to, even with uh, emotional uh, challenges. And my mission, uh, I believe, on this planet is to fix that for every entrepreneur. And particularly particularly the small businesses. And I think that's why it's super applicable to your community. Like solopreneurs or someone with two or three employees, maybe a little bit bigger company – my heart cries out to those businesses because that's what I tried to grow through. And while I did insult those companies, I was really unsuccessful at it. Um, and, and today I, I still continue to run businesses now that are small. One company has 14 employees. Another one has four. So they're, they're small businesses. Um, but it keeps my, keeps my head in the game and, uh, 
Well, a lot of a lot of the service companies that are small, I call them artisans. It's like they're really, yeah. really good at the thing, the technical deliverable or whatever this thing is that they do. They build the retaining wall or build the deck or whatever. And yeah. they, they really struggle understanding that that's not the same as, you know, being a real business owner, having an automated business. Now, on the flip side, you know, I have friends that have huge multi-million dollar, you know, cleaning companies and something that yeah. you would think sounds like this silly little thing like, oh, Billy's starting a window cleaning business. That's so cute. Well, when you're doing eight million a year and you have 150 employees and you're doing all this stuff, it can be a great business, but you got to have the right systems and framework. I want to ask you something, though, before you blow our minds with systems and, and <laughs> your book clockwork and all that. Do you think like, cause you had two big successes early on yeah. and, uh, it, it, did it make you feel like you couldn't fail because you had two big wins? And then I guess the flip side of that is a lot of the people I deal with, there's like, they have the opposite. So because they come from nothing, non-entrepreneurial family members, maybe they had poverty or just low level thinking in their whole life. They think it's not possible. That's the one yeah. extreme. But then someone like you starts some pretty sexy sounding companies, right? <laughs> like tech stuff and all that. And they work or you exit yeah. them. And to talk about that for a second. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. So I did get stuck in this perception of myself that um, I could do no wrong. It literally, I felt I had the Midas touch. And I'm sure people listening in have heard that. Like your friends, like, oh, you have the Midas touch. I heard that enough times I actually believed I was Midas. So I, I threw caution to the wind. I, I didn't put any preparation into things. And I, and I totally believe trust your instinct and gut, but put thought into things. And when I started this angel investing company, I had no right to be in that space. I didn't understand what it meant. I didn't do any due diligence. I didn't talk to anybody about it. I'm like, oh, this is going to be easy. And uh, I struggled. In the tech space, I, I had some understanding of how those businesses operate um, and, and how to grow them. I found, and as I'm writing my newest book, I, I find that the reason many of us are stuck, and the best one I'm talking about in my new book is is kind of sticking points, is that um, is that we have a strong, such a strong tie to our identity that will will behave consistently with it, even if it's to our detriment. So someone that sees themselves as wealthy and really believes it, that's the key to identity, will act consistently with it to to stay in that that outward perception and people who have suffered in poverty in poverty and, and see themselves that way will actually make an effort to stay like that. And it's not a conscious like, Oh, I'm, you know, if I make something, I'm going to ditch it. But I've seen businesses that start getting traction. And then, uh, those people actually unwind their own business. They undermine it because, you know, they can't hang out the same friends. Like now, yes. now they're not part of the group. Self-sabotage. Yeah. They say self-sabotage. And I think that the, the, compulsion to be compliant with our identity exceeds anything uh, else in our potential success or failure. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm no psychologist and not trying to pretend to be one, but yeah. I've been reading a lot about this idea of status that everybody, every single thing everybody does is either to protect their perceived status or to increase their perceived status. Yeah. And it's a deep, deep topic. We don't have to totally rabbit trail, but I think that's really fascinating because if you perceive yourself to be wealthy, you wouldn't do a low level thing because it would disrupt your status. But if you perceive yourself to be someone who will never be wealthy, you feel uncomfortable doing the basic things that could potentially make you wealthy. Um, and it's, it's just about having that, um, God, what's it called in like a closed system when you keep everything baseline? Yeah, closed loop, right? It's a closed loop, but you, you can't look outside of it. There, it's funny, there's this guy telling me uh, the story of the scorpion and the frog. I don't know if you heard this, but 
there's a scorpion trying to cross a river and there's a frog trying to cross and the scorpion approaches the frog and the frog of course is terrified because scorpions eat frogs and kill frogs. Scorpion says, I need to get across the river. Can I carry my back? And the frog says, no, because you'll sting me. And the scorpion says, of course I can't, st- I won't sting you. I see across the river. We would both die. So the frog acknowledges and says, okay, jump on my back. Halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog, as, as the frog is dying, the frog's like, you just killed us both. Why did you do that? And the scorpion looks at him and says, because I'm a scorpion. Bam. Yeah. And that's it. Like, even though it killed the scorpion, he still could not stop that compulsion. And that's how we all are. Yes. We think we're logical, but it's all an illusion. Yeah. We're high, We're completely emotional. Completely. Right. But, okay, so that was fascinating. I'm glad we got, got that in. What does the artisan business owner do? If they recognize, okay, I'm behaving like a, uh, I'm obsessed, I'm a perfectionist, I have to do everything myself, but I want, I'm, I'm changing my mind, I want to scale yeah. a business. What's the road look like for that person? So in my book, I, I did outline steps, and we can review that, but I'll tell you the one starting point is to what we just discussed is changing the label. I really became a successful author once I owned the title, and what I mean by this is, People approach me once I started writing books and say, what would you do? I'd say, oh, I write books, but I'm an entrepreneur. And I put priority on saying that I'm an entrepreneur. The day I finally said, I'm an author full-time, this is what I am, and started publicly declaring that, my behavior became in alignment with the declaration. So I would no longer say, you know, I build retaining walls or uh, I'm a contractor or um, any term that you use that speaks the activity of doing something beyond I am a business owner or a business leader, and that's it. I own and run, operate a business. And once we take on this new term and, and we publicly state it and we, we, we keep repeating it until we truly own that term, then our behaviors will come in alignment with it. And then we have an opportunity to really grow that business because now we're going to act consistently with what grows a business as opposed to constantly putting out fires, take care of the issue, which is typical of the kind of that technical or artisan mindset. Yeah. Everything is reactive instead of proactive, but you're totally right. You're so right. But the the thing I know that the little guys are thinking right now is this sounds like woo woo stuff to them because I I remember thinking that. I remember people saying things like, you just got to change your mindset, man. You got to change your You're the average of the five people you hang out with. Now all that stuff is a hundred percent truth, but when you are totally broken, it doesn't sound true. It yes. sounds weird. You, yes. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but I know exactly what you're talking. I want to like reach through the the earphones and like smack those people in a loving way, like wake up, pew, pew, pew. like this really is the path. It's not woo woo, but I can't. Yeah. I can't do. Yeah, that. but yeah, but at the same time, I also get it because when you're in when you're in the forest, like we got to get out of the forest, and talking about the forest is of no value when there's a bear chasing you down. You know, we got to tackle issues. So there is a very strategic way of of going from in the business to on the business. That's terminology from Michael Gerber. Um, the only challenge – I love Michael Gerber's book, E-Myth. Uh, I think it's a, a mandatory read. Uh, but I also argue it's more of a theoretical working in on. There's not practical. So I, I actually keynoted along with Michael and uh, went out to dinner together with him. He, he notably is an eccentric guy. And uh, I, I said, you know what? This concept of moving into on is seen as a switch. I think it's more of a throttle. And that you don't just one day wake up and now you're running a business. You have to slowly, over months, sometimes years, step into this process. And uh, that's why I wrote Clockwork, which he actually subsequently endorsed my work. The the approach is this. The first step um, is to identify 
the current work activities you're doing and have clarity around that. Um, I think a lot of people are aware of this, that, you know, if you track a week or two of your time, how you spend it, it is usually in direct contrast to what you perceive you do. You know, oh, I'm on Facebook for 10 minutes a day at the most. And, I, you know, I do email for an hour. And then you look at this analysis after you collect the time, you're like, wow, I'm on email for seven hours a day. And I'm on you know Facebook for 20 hours a day. I don't know how 20 plus seven works in a day, but it does. Like, that's real. <laughs> but there's one additional step we need to do, and this is this is starts kind of opening our eye. We need to qualify each of our activities with one of four stages that a business is in and an entrepreneur is in. I call them the four Ds. Four levels are this. First level is called doing. Doing is an activity where it's, we're providing direct benefit to our client, you know, building that retaining wall, or is a supporting activity that that supports the delivery of those benefits. So it could be invoicing, you know, marketing, any other activity the business must do to ultimately get those retaining walls uh, installed or customers aware of them and buying them. Those are doing. Most entrepreneurs that are uh, in businesses that are, are being carried on their back are doing 99% of the time. The next level up is called deciding. And deciding uh, is a little, it always happens in businesses, but Many businesses don't label it this way. So it's little known, but very common. Deciding is where you bring on an employee or some, someone in some capacity to help out and you task rabbit them. You say, hey, go go set up this wall, you know, or whatever the task is. And they come back a second later and say, oh, should we use, what kind of grout should we use? Or, you know, mortar. I don't even know what the materials would be, so I should be careful. But what, what should I use? And we answer the question. They go back and they go, they, they leave and they come back a minute later with another question. You know, how deep should the foundation be, right? Whatever. They come back a second later and it's this constant stream of questions. In the beginning, it's very flattering. It's like, oh, these people are learners. They want to grow. But when this incessant stream of questions goes on for weeks and then months, it's like they're idiots. Like they, they can't learn. And we get frustrated. <laughs> we get frustrated and often take the work back from them and say, gosh, you know, I'm the only one that can do this work. Right. That's exactly what happens. They retract. They they they're, they dip their toe in, they dabble with, you know, building a team. And yep. it's like an org chart where they're the dot in the middle and it's not really a top down. It's like there's a circle of dots around them. That's right. <laughs> and everybody's That's like, right. hey boss, hey boss, hey boss, hey boss. It, yeah, I call it the, the Kali syndrome. And the reason I call it Kali is there's a Hindu goddess named Kali was a single female head with eight arms. And that's what we've become. One brain controlling all these different things. And we're very – our brain's very limited. We, you know, it, It's designed for one body, yet we're trying to control multiple. And therefore, most businesses will never scale beyond two or maybe three time, three employees because it forces – in that model, the owner to make every single decision. Well, check this out. Have you ever heard of the concept of decision fatigue? No. So like um, willpower is the same way. There's been some scientific stuff on it, but you know, we have a, a finite capacity. Everybody's a little different of how much willpower we have per day mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and with decisions the same way. So like when you get burned out, um, you know, at, by lunch, because you're making so many really dumb, low level decisions, not that they're not important, but they're not important for you to do if you're going to be thinking higher level, it just yeah. burns you out. And so it makes sense to retract back and say, never mind. Yeah, I did a quick Google as you're saying it. Yeah. So now I, I am now familiar with the term. I, I didn't know it's called decision fatigue, but it is our waning ability. And then our slip to being irrational, right? We, we just, oh yeah, just do that, whatever. I, I know I've been in arguments with my wife and Decision fatigue seems to kick in very quickly, and I start acquiesce, acquiescing some stupid decisions just to get through that situation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You just can't. You hit your walls are down. You can't fight anymore. Yeah. Exactly. So the next level up, and this is actually the way out of it, is 
by delegating. Now, the funny thing is many business owners confuse the deciding phase with delegating. They'll say, oh, I've hired employees. I delegate work. And that's not true. The deciding side is where you're task rabbiting. You're assigning jobs or tasks, but then you're still making decisions around them. Delegation is the assignment of outcomes, not the assignment of tasks. And what we do in this stage is we tell an employee, you know, not go build a wall. We say, hey, it's important that we uh, create uh, a wall that will achieve X, Y, Z. Like, here's the outcomes. It's straight. It's structurally sound. It can support something above it or whatever. We define that and we get clarity on that outcome. Then we tell them, there's some best practices we have and we want you to follow the best practices. But when you reach a question, a point where you have a question or a challenge, we've hired you not for only your arms, but what's on that shoulder of yours, that head of yours, make a decision that's in the best interest uh, for achieving this outcome. So it's the assignment of outcomes. And you got to understand, employees are wired to not make decisions, wired by us. They come back to us and they'll say, well, how should I proceed? And the reason I do that is if they make their own decisions and the decision's wrong, well, there's a potential punitive situation here with you. They, you, they get fired over this or something. It's safer to ask and it's quicker. Also, as entrepreneurs, it feeds our ego because if we answer questions, we're the all-knowing being. It feels very empowering. So we get often revert back to this uh, deciding phase away from delegation. But the, I think the biggest roadblock that and I think people know this, like forced decisions or decisions to your employees. I think most people know that. I think few execute on it. There's another one that nothing, no one I've met knows this, and therefore almost no one's doing it. And what it is is rewarding all decisions, which means reward even the bad decisions. And that's what people don't do. This is where the guy, you know, he sets up the wall and he, he doesn't use any kind of binding material. He just tries to stack, stack the rocks, and it comes crumbling down. And um, it, what we do is like, you're an idiot. Why didn't you use this? What we need to say is, hey, man, uh, you made some decisions that you know we were trying to achieve this outcome of a structural wall and so forth, and you made some decisions that you felt were in our best interest. Maybe you thought we'd, it would cost less or maybe uh, whatever your reasoning is, you felt it was in the best interest of the company. I want to thank you and congratulate you first for deciding that. Now, it didn't seem to work out, so I'm here to mentor you and, and help you uh, – guide you to potentially a better decision – but I want to acknowledge that was great that you tried. I love and it. That's the key to reward even the bad decisions, even if when you have to bite your tongue. If you do that, you start winning over the confidence of your employees. Hundred percent, man. I I call it um, giving people permission to fail. Because yeah. yeah, employees are terrified they're going to screw some mundane thing up. When the reality is, is and here's another thing that I always say on the podcast is that making perfect decisions isn't the goal because that's not even a real thing. That's a fake construct in our head. The that's goal right. is just to make decisions. Another yes. thing I've been talking about lately is decision velocity, which I don't know what's up with me with buzz phrases, but I think they're really cool because you can remember them. But making decisions quickly, like you're not going to make this. You, just as even being owners ourselves, just making decisions, going to the next thing, knocking the domino over and moving on, you know, because we're all learning as this happens. And so is your team. They're learning and they're they're their, uh, you know, quote unquote stock price as a, a worker in your company goes up as they get more real life experience That's making right. bad decisions. That's exactly right. And then it also elevates you to the final D, which is designing. So when you are truly delegating, your employees are stepping into uh, more and more decision roles on their own allows you to become a designer. And what a designer is, is where you have clarity on the vision you want to achieve. 
maybe it's a revenue number, maybe it's a, a flavor of your business. And I mean by flavor, like what it looks like visually, what you're experiencing, what your life is like. That's the vision. And then it's choreographing and organizing all the resources around you, your people, the tools, equipment you use, even your clients to make that goal happen and to navigate around the daily problems or challenges that moves cohesively the group toward it. And I'll tell you, one, one of the ways to do it is to realize that no one in your organization is motivated by the corporate goals, except for the owners. Like, you know, I want to have a $10 million business. It sounds great to me because I own the business and that translates to a personal income and status or whatever. But my employees, they just have a job. So I realized is when it comes to organizing my resources, including my, my colleagues, is to get clarity on what benefits them and put that in alignment with the outcome I want. Meaning, you know, one gal at our office, her name's Amy, she just wants a job where she could walk to work. That was always her dream, to walk to work. So she happened to be within two blocks of where she lives. And she wants the flexibility that when her family, she's she's almost empty nester now, when her uh, kids come home or something, that she can be there, you know, waiting for them to see her kids arrive home every day. Uh, other times, her husband travels a lot. When he comes home, she wants to be there. So walk to work, highly flexible. That's That was her two dreams. So we structured the business around it. I didn't go, hey, Amy, we're going to try it for $10 million this year. How, how pumped are you? I said, hey, Amy. Uh, we're, we're, the business is organizing to be $10 million this year, specifically around you. We are going to offer extreme flexibility, work when you can, and change the role accordingly so you can be with your family. How's that? Uh, how do you feel about that? And she loves our organization. Oh, man. She'll go to war for you. These people will does. go to war for us if we will just care about them. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Dream Manager book or that concept, right? Yes. And, yeah. uh, I'm working on something right now. I'm building a, I have a software company. I don't know that you know that about me, but we're building an app for uh, employees. It's a gamification app for employees. And one of the components inside of it, you know, it gives them points and they can redeem it for stuff as they're doing things. Um, but there's like this dream manager piece to it where you're going to identify like your employees love language, which sounds cheesy, but it's like, how do they respond? Like public recognition is one cash time off is another one. Another one could be words of affirmation or something like that. But making sure that us as owners can stay organized in the way that we manage the relationships uh, with our team, right? So we sometimes people talk about relationship marketing in terms of, we just talked about John Rulin, and he's a professional gift giver, and yes. how he sent us both ex ridiculously expensive gifts because he's amazing and he's really smart. But we need to do this stuff with our staff too, right? That's exactly right. And the fact that you referenced the, the love languages, I know there's the five love languages, that is mandatory reading for our entire business. Like our employees read that and everyone does because those are that's the ultimate communication platform. And this isn't you know romantic relationships, obviously. These are business relationships, but to show appreciation for someone, you need to speak in their language. So – you know, Amy's was acts of service, um, is that she wants to be available for her, uh, husband and children, um, to, to be of service. That's how she expresses love. So what do we do for her? Um, is we will do a little acts of service for her. And so this is a kind of up leveling a little further, but one day she came into the office and we have a morning huddle and we asked, everyone always gives a personal update. And she says, yeah, my personal update is my coffee machine broke today. And that just, that stinks. Well, when she got home, there was a brand new coffee machine that was delivered to her already programmed. So ready to rock and roll, uh, the next morning for her. And she lost her mind over this because it spoke to her personal 
need and desire and, and spoken to her language where, oh, where something was being done for her. So powerful. She didn't have to go out and buy it. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the monetary value attached to it. It has nothing no. to do with how many minutes it took you to order it. It's it's that no. she feels loved and and noticed, you know. She, I, that's it, yep. It's, it's so, oh my gosh. I... If you have time, and you probably, maybe this is just one of those things where, you know, you tell someone, you got to listen to this podcast, but no one ever actually does it because it's just things we say to each other. I have a friend named Myron Golden. I'm pretty sure you would completely freak out when you listen to an interview I did with him, but he talks about these these four stages but he calls them the four levels of value and it's really similar to doing deciding delegating designing what he talks about is how in the whole world it doesn't matter if you like it it doesn't matter if you're mad at it but there's a universal cross-cultural truth to the universe that the lowest level of value is implementation which is funny because mm-hmm. it lines up with doing. It's the same thing. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So yeah. it doesn't matter what, if you're mad, if, if McDonald's French fry fryer should make $30 an hour, you can want that all you want. But just like like science, like nature demands that implementation is the lower form of value. It doesn't mean it's bad. We need implementers. The point is, yeah. is that they can't make as much as the, the people doing the designing, right? So then your next level is deciding. His next one is called unification, which is really management of people. It's like if you can, if you're a manager of a McDonald's, you'll have a certain, you know, income range. If you're a manager of any, any company, there's a, kind of a range there, but there's a ceiling on it. And then the third level, which you call delegation, he calls communication. And not just being able to talk, but being able to make somebody feel something with your words. Like being able to, and I like the way you broke it down. It's not about the tactics, it's about the outcomes, like assigning outcomes to people. It's super epic, that's so freaking awesome. And then his highest form of value where there's no ceiling on your income is imagination, where you use your brain Mm -hmm. to build wealth. And that's what you're talking about. It's like this universal truth that you both independently discovered or something. It's freaking me out. Yeah, I love it. So I I typed that up, I, I will listen to it. It's now my calendar. Um, which, by the way, is the ultimate productivity tool. Is just simply a calendar. You can yeah, put a I'll, list or I'll, whatever you want. <laughs> I'll send you a link to it. It's you're going to be like, what when you hear him? And he's That's just awesome. an overall stud. But this is stuff like what, what's cool about this and you providing a framework like this in Clockwork. This isn't like um, conjecture. What no. this is is truth. Like this is what you have to do to get the thing. You can't skip it. Skip a step do it your own way. It doesn't work. You have to conform with the path. It might look different, but you, I, am I missing something? I mean, this no, is the way spot. you have to do it. doesn't matter if you like it, do it. This is the way you have to do it. Now, the interesting thing, so this is just the first step in clockwork. The, you know, this is the analysis of where you're allocating time. The business has to be doing the, you know, their old Pareto principle, the 80, 20 rule, 80% of the business must be doing. If you're not building walls for customers and you're just thinking about how great it would be, of course you'll never gain business. The goal though is to move the entrepreneur to these higher levels um, and and enable a team to do the core levels like the uh, the doing work. The, the other thing that was interesting as I was uh, you know, doing the research and then ultimately applying this to my own business is discovery, I think it's the most profound concept from Clockwork, is the discovery of what's called the QBR. And the QBR stands for Queen Bee Roll. And how it came about was I was studying business efficiency. I went to uh, dozens of different types of businesses trying to identify what makes a business super efficient. Well, I found out that uh, there was no common thread that I could find necessarily. They all had their own secret sauce, but it was too disparate to to put in as a single singular concept. Then I discovered beehives. And beehives have the answer that all these businesses had just didn't realize – but all businesses have. 
And what it is, is a simple rule set. And it's two rules. If you're a beehive, you can, beehives, by the way, are extremely efficient in their energy use. They scale or grow very quickly. The first rule is ensure that the queen bee role is humming along. No humming, no pun intended. But um, what they do, what they do is they make sure the queen bee who produces eggs, that's the role to produce eggs, is always producing eggs because the hive has uh, a lot of turnover, I'm doing air quotes. Bees die very quickly, so they need to be constantly spawning new bees through egg production. So every bee knows, make sure the eggs are being produced. Don't confuse this, though, with thinking the queen bee is the most important bee. She's just serving the most important role. If she fails to serve it, they will remove her and they'll spawn a new queen bee. The second rule is only when the queen bee role is functioning, then you go and do your primary job function, collecting nectar, defending the hive or whatever. Um, but if the primary job function is failing, then we have to go and revert and protect that and speed it up. Well, I found in businesses – Every business, everyone listening, has a QBR. And sadly, no business or very few businesses know what their QBR is, the most critical function in the business to keep it humming along. Most don't know it. They think that everything's critical, and therefore they divert their attention and energy to everything, therefore diluting the differentiator. So here's the super shortcut to find it. First, be very clear what your brand promise is, or I call it the big promise to give it singularity. Now, one challenge here is many businesses don't have that single promise. So you better get clear on this. Now, is this something you can identify and make up yourself? So it's your guarantee. Do you guarantee uh, the quality of your work? Maybe it's, it's, it's you guarantee timeliness. Uh, uh, maybe there's other things. Maybe the originality or history of the work. If you do historical like renovations or something, you know, what's the one promise you make? As a good example, if we look at FedEx – I use FedEx because they're a big company and everyone recognizes the name. Their big promise is to deliver packages on time. They don't, they don't promise great customer service. They try to have that, but they deliver packages on time. Once you figure out the big promises, you then peel back the onion one layer and say, what's the activity, the doing level that supports that? And for FedEx, the doing activity is the logistics, the movement of packages. They can spend more time doing customer service and be the most friendly people. You know, you accidentally call and you think it's a pizza shop. They'll take your pizza order and get delivered. They could do that, but it, it, it maybe they'll win a little bit more business or a little more favor. But if they ever stop doing customer service or, or say, you know, we're not going to answer phones for the next week or two, it'll hurt them, but it won't put them out of business, I don't think. Conversely, if they say, you know what, let's just stop doing logistics. Let's let's take a couple of weeks off from delivering packages. Stick a fork in FedEx. They're done. So we need to do the same thing. We need to determine what's the big promise we're making to our customers. Singular promise: delivering packages on time. You know, quality of work. This is then so we say, good. Then we say, what's the single activity? Now, there's many activities that support it, but what's the single most important activity making that a reality? Well, it's the it's the training of our technicians, or uh, I don't know what it is, but you have to determine it. All attention has to be on making sure that hums along. And if it's ever threatened or compromised, the entire business is being compromised. We need to revert our attention to it. As a designer, ultimately, initially as an entrepreneur, you may be doing that work. But we need to start peeling you away from everything and ultimately peeling you away from even laying the eggs, doing the QBR work, so that you can be building a company structure that supports it, serves it, and protects it. You can just be a beekeeper at that point. <laughs> oh, Mike. Okay. That, I have five kids, so I have cheesy dad jokes for days. But that is so good. I mean, so good. I, 
I remember Pumpkin Plan, how you use nature to make a point too, but the whole beehive thing, that was like epic. I'm taking notes over here. So I don't even know where to go from there, but here, here's my question. Um, small businesses think everything is equally important. And uh, you gave the right. framework sort of like the framework of, you know, what's the big promise you make? And maybe that's a customer's expectation of who you are, because we don't want to be FedEx with really super nice call center reps, but all the packages are late. <laughs> right. that, that wouldn't work, right? <clears throat> right. But is there any other useful tips, tricks, anything you can you can help share with the yeah. audience to kind of demystify, I, I view it, I'm visualizing a box of Legos dumped out in the living room floor. That's what they yeah, think yeah, their yeah. business is. Yeah. Everything feels urgent, you know, like the yes. Stephen Covey thing, the difference between all that. I don't know. Is, is there any more rails we can put oh, on I this? got a lot more. You know, um, I actually call this the challenge between the apparent and the impactful. We are very drawn to the apparent because it's apparent. It's right in front of us. It's obvious. And so we constantly tackle millions of the apparent issues, but the impactful stuff is something that needs more thought. Um, and we don't put much into it. I would argue actually many entrepreneurs get more satisfaction out of doing than designing. They get more satisfaction out of the activity than the thinking. And the reason is the thinking requires more burn of energy. So we're actually curtail it. Like if I ask someone, hey, go dig a ditch. You have 10 minutes to dig a ditch or 10 minutes to solve a Rubik's Cube. The vast majority of people would actually rather dig the ditch, even though it's more physically tasking. Um, and the people that start the Rubik's Cube, by the way, will give up within a few minutes and run out and dig the ditch anyway. So, <laughs> you know, That's we so revert, true. We revert to that. So, But, but I, here's the counterpoint. The, one of the most famous statues of all time is dedicated to the task of designing. It's by Michelangelo, and it's called The Thinker. Here's a naked guy with his chin resting on his th- fist just thinking. And that's when you aspire to. I do not know of any Michelangelo statue called the doer. It's the thinker. And that's what we should aspire to be. Now, here's strategically how we execute on this. First step, you you outlined all your work for two weeks in that task. You, you said, is it doing work? Is it designing work? Whatever. Next, I want to see if you're doing the QBR, which for most small businesses, the entrepreneur is involved to some degree in the QBR. If you are, Put that task, grab a blank piece of paper, an eight and a half by 11, in the center, write that one critical activity. That's the QBR. Circle it like a bullseye. Then all those other tasks on the task list, make a line from that center bullseye out uh, and make that line representative of the time you spend on it. So if you spend an hour a day on email, draw a line that represents one hour, and then in the end box, put email. If you spend four hours a day doing quote preparation, draw a line that's four times as long as the one hour. So now you have another line going in a different direction from the center out for four hours. And what this will make is a hub and spoke design, but a very unbalanced one. And this becomes a very powerful visual to see what what work is taking you the furthest away, meaning it's the most distracting, from completing the QBR. And that's the work that we need to uh, either transfer to other people, we need to w- find a way to trim it, make it more efficient, um, or ideally trash it altogether if it's not necessary. Every time, every minute we recover goes back to the QBR. So if, if you're able to get quotations off your plate and get it done by someone else, you've transferred it, that four hours now gets pulled back and you circle the QBR four more times, strengthening and protecting it. The goal in this phase is for you to uh, avert any of the lower level work so you can focus more and more on this critical function, the activity of the QBR. Then once that's protected and you are the one serving it, then the goal is to peel you out from that. We start inserting other people. We don't want one queen bee. That's the problem with beehives. If the queen bee dies and they can't spawn a new one, the entire hive dies. 
That's the risk. So we want multiple queen bees. In a small business, it may just be you for now, but once we get all those other distractions off your plate, then the goal is to get clones of the queen bee uh, serving that QBR, peel you out, so now you're not doing anything inside the business, and we elevate you specifically to the design work. That is beautifully said, because to scale the business, you just keep replicating the, the person who's delegated the outcome of what the QBR will produce, and you just keep doing that and have more and more queen bees. I think that's awesome. And then the, the hub and spoke thing with the line uh, going further away yeah. from the center, that, that's awesome. I'm super visual. So I think that's really, really, really helpful. That's, that's some epic stuff, Mr. Mike Michalowicz. I don't know. I, I hope with all of this awesome stuff that you're doing and all these books that you're selling, you don't get back to the Midas Touch thing and then ruin it for yourself again <laughs> because you're having too – it's too good. It's too good. You gave me, me chills saying that. Thank you. I think that, I think that in earnest, I – I hope my ego has been permanently pulled out. I, I don't like those douchebag days of me anymore. I was full of arrogance. I thought I was better than other people and uh, thought I was this genius. I realize now I don't know much at all and that really uh, the more I learn, the, the better and more confidence I have for myself. But I feel, I, I feel compelled to share it. And I, I don't think the learning will ever stop. There's uh, one last thing too I want to share about sure. this strategy. And I think it's the final, most epic thing. And I'm proud to say my business partner today walked to my office a little bit choked up and has made this commitment. This is the, the next move for us to grow our business needed to happen. And I call it the four-week vacation. Here's what it is. Everyone listening to this call needs to, or this podcast needs to declare a four-week vacation. Josh, you too, me too. And what it is, is not like tomorrow morning, but at a period of time, and maybe a year from now, I want us to be remove ourselves from the business fully. No digital connection, no physical connection, total disconnect. And the goal and the reason it's four weeks is most businesses experience all elements of the business in four weeks. New clients, lost opportunities, issues with employees, equipment failure, um, collecting money. Every element happens for most businesses in monthly cycles. Therefore, the theory is this. If we remove ourselves for four weeks and the business can survive or thrive, we can remove ourselves permanently. And that's a business that's extremely valuable because it can operate without you, which means you have the luxury to do what you want when you want, which is part of the goal of freedom. Secondly, your valuation to an external buyer skyrockets because now there's no dependency on the owner. Therefore, you're way more valuable. What happens is by declaring this four-week vacation, first – like. Like just hearing that, some people probably started having a little bit of a heart attack, uh, <laughs> right? Like, oh yeah, it, it sounds terrifying. Um, people are like, "That's that's absurd." Are you kidding? Like, the business needs me, which, by the way, points to the biggest weakness. If it's if you're carrying on your back, it's the biggest weakness. What happens is when you remove yourself for that period of time, when you return, it won't be perfect. There will be problems, but because you're leading up to it, you'll be preparing much more as a designer to not have to do any work. When you return, any problems you've had is an indicator of the things you need to fix next. But, and by the way, leading up to the four-week vacation, I have a whole script and clockwork of how to do this. You don't just take a four-week vacation. Starting pretty soon, we'll take a one-week vacation. Then we run tests, what didn't work, what needs repair, then two weeks and three weeks. I, I myself took a four-week vacation. My most recent one was January, I'm sorry, December 7th to January 7th of this past year. And what I discovered was that my business can operate 99% without me, maybe 95% without me. One thing I didn't realize was a significant issue was our branding, brand consistency. I didn't realize it was almost subconscious whenever there was an ad or a web design or anything, I was the guy generally doing it. 
And uh, I didn't put much thought to it. Well, when I was away, they had to do some logo designs and some other things and came back and there was this incongruency that confused some customers. They said, oh, I didn't even realize that was related to what Mike's doing. So that's now the piece I'm working on. How do I get the branding consistent but off my plate? And I'm going my next fortification to test it out. And the last point is my business partner, as I told you, this morning walked in. I've been begging him to leave for four weeks. Uh, and he's like, no, I, I can't. I, I can't do it. <laughs> it's hard. Like, it's so it's hard. hard. I said, Ron, if you don't do it, man, we can never live independently of you and me. And if we can't, we can't sell this business. Like one day for big dollars, we got to get you out of here. Plus, we, we have to reveal what where you're carrying us and where you're not so we can improve. Whatever happened today, he was finally convinced after – over a year begging him, he was convinced today. He's like, I, I've committed. And um, so much so now that I and my partner soon, we're rolling this out to all our employees. The next thing is we're, gonna, we're forcing sabbaticals on employees or requiring it so that we can prove the health of the business through redundancy even at the employee level. Wow. That is bad to the bone. <laughs> that is bad to the bone. No, that is so cool. So cool. You're doing some really cool stuff. I hope everybody listening. First of all, thank you so much. I have like 8 billion things running through my head. I'm sure we can connect again. Uh, but for everybody listening, uh, go to Amazon and grab Clockwork and uh, go to MikeMcCallowitz.com. His last name spelled funny, but you can just sort of spell it in Google and Google will still pop him up. Type Mike, then M-I-C for my last name. He'll find it. Or you can go to MikeMotorbike.com. That's my shortcut if you can't spell McCallowitz. Got it. Yes, because I'm on your email list too. You got some great copy. You're super creative. I love reading the stuff that you have. And uh, if you have any final words of wisdom, and by the way, when you were telling the story about how you've been humbled and you had massive success and then humbled... To me, it was just a difference between knowledge and wisdom, you know, like mm-hmm. I always joke that <laughs> I was so much smarter when I was 18, you know, <laughs> but the truth is, is that you just get more wise. You, we become more aware of what we don't know the older we get, you know, at least in theory. So for some of us, that's what should happen. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing so much. If you have any closing epic words of encouragement or calls to action, let it rip. Yeah, a small recap is simply I want you to change your label. That's something we can do immediately. No longer call yourself a, you know, I'm I'm the the wall guy, I'm a contractor. Those are all doing labels. I want you to be a business designer. So own that title. I'm a business designer. Next time someone asks you what you do, say I'm a business designer. And that will they'll be like a deer in headlights. And now you have to explain yourself and repeat that process over and over again until you believe it. So once you own that term then the execution of these steps is a million times easier uh, than if you see yourself otherwise. Awesome. Well said. Thank you so much, Mike. You are the man. Fist bump, chest bump, high five. Oh, there you go. Fist bump through the microphone. (laughs) Awesome, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, thanks for hanging out, friends. And from all of us here at the Quick Talk Podcast team, we hope you love today's show. We hope that you were inspired to become a doer and not just a listener. Apply what you've heard today in your own business and watch things change for the better. Lastly, remember that all the money in the world can't save your soul. Seek first the kingdom of God, my friends. We'll see you next time. For more information about the Quick Talk Podcast or Joshua's other businesses, visit our website, quicktalkpodcast.com. Have a blessed day.